is really accessible for a lot of people who want to incorporate charitable giving without complexity. Rachel touched on that. Um, this is a really easy way to get started um, and to start incorporating this into your planning. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sast. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. We're just, you know, toiling away, keeping the lights on. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. Yeah. We've been enjoying the fact that it has been raining. This is a novelty item around here. And because these things don't actually get used on any sort of regular basis, my kids have just like stuck an open umbrella on our back porch. So every time it starts to rain, they get the umbrella and they somebody goes and stands under the umbrella Aww. because the rain is so novel. <laughs> that's cute that's cute I know I had to we went out uh this last weekend we went shopping and it was it was drizzling the entire day I'm thinking oh my gosh where is the umbrella I know I have them somewhere around the house and I, you know it's way up in the closet the tippy tippy top you gotta you know brush off all the dust off of it but I'm like all right I'm prepared with an umbrella maybe I'll get some rain boots going you know this is out <laughs> Once in a decade opportunity here. Yeah, don't miss it. It's yeah. sort of like the the windshield wipers on the car. Mine are always crumbling and falling apart, literally falling apart because I don't use them. And then when it actually does rain, I, I roll into O'Reilly or somewhere of similar ilk and me and about 15 other people are in, in the parking lot switching out wiper blades. Oh, my gosh. Everybody yeah. just waits until it actually rains. Right? Yeah. Fun. You, you never realize your wiper blades are absolutely horrible until it's pouring rain. You're like, oh, great. This isn't helping at all. I still can't see the road. Mm -mm. Yep, I it's, had that When experience. it's just skipping across the windshield and it's not really moving any water, then you know you probably have a safety concern on your hands. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I saw a really cool video today from like Sabino Canyon, Tanka Verde Falls. People uh, took like a drone back there to see what it all looks like. And it is insane to see the amount of water coming through and people, you know, taking videos of like actual waterfalls coming off the mountain. We're like, what, where are we? Is this, is this Hawaii where there's waterfalls coming off the side of the road? It's, it's been amazing. Yeah. I, you know what? I've had enough of it. I, I want, I want to go back to the consistency. Yeah, I'm done. I just want the consistency. I just want to know every day that I wake up in the summer, it's going to be 105 degrees and sunny. That's all. That's all I want to know. It's hot, yes, but at least I can anticipate it. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. The rain, the rain definitely is, you know, um, my front yard is full of weeds. My backyard needs pruning. So I get it. Yep. We we've had we've had a good run. Had a good run this season. Exactly. Plants are growing. It's terrible. <laughs> shut this down. It's awful. They should be shriveling up. Yeah. Yeah. They should be in their normal state of like hiding underground. Yeah. <laughs> well, we uh, we are joined by our friend Aaron McDonald today. Aaron is a partner at Carnop Peterson in beautiful Bend, Oregon. So, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So, because I probably wouldn't do justice to it, why don't you at least give us like a, a high level CV so people know who you are? Oh, sure. So, so. Um, 
Erin McDonald, and I have been practicing for nearly 20 years in the area of estate planning and estate administration in Bend. And I generally counsel clients on planning their estates, uh, talking about intergenerational wealth transfer. And one of my favorite topics is talking about philanthropy and how to put together or include philanthropy in the planning that I do for clients. Perfect, because that's what we want to talk about. So you're you're just the right person, I think. We, uh, uh, you know, we we practice in a similar area. We kind of have our own origin stories as they are. How did you get into this area? Oh my goodness. Well, actually, my undergraduate degree was in psychology, and um, after graduating from undergrad, I spent a year skiing in Jackson Hole kind of trying to figure out my next step and decided that law school was going to be that next step. And I, and I went off to law school, not really knowing the outcome of my studies, but knowing that I wanted to just put a little more time into, um, kind of exploring, exploring the law and the discipline of the law and coming out of law school. My favorite work that I did was in tax, totally unexpected, but I loved the tax work. And so I, I tell people when I when I talk about what I do as estate planning, it is almost the perfect blend of the psychology and the counseling. It's getting involved um, with the with the families and the dynamics of families and the sensitivities that go along with families and with money. And then, of course, tax work um, goes hand in hand with estate planning, because often what we're doing when we're planning estates is looking at various income and estate tax consequences. So that's that's the history from an academic perspective. And then, um, you know, in the 20 years, I've just enjoyed working with all different types of estates, um, sizes of estates. Uh, lots of closely held businesses um, where I live in central Oregon, lots of ranching families. Um, so those are all those are all the kinds of things that I like to to dig into. Very nice. We joked that if it wasn't for people, law would be easy. <laughs> That's right. There's a big people component. <laughs> it wouldn't be interesting it, either for the record, all of the yeah, clients listening. Exactly. The people part is the unpredictability. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like once you once you have figured out what the law is, that part's really clear. How people will act, that is never clear. Uh, that that one uh, will throw you for loops sometimes. That's right. Well, we're excited to to talk to you about phil- philanthropic planning and in particular donor advised funds, which is sort of a uh, a topic near to all of our collective hearts here. So, you know, it seems like donor advised funds are a creature that either is um, growing in prominence or metastasizing, depending on uh, how you view them. And they don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Uh, although our experiences, uh, charities who could p- potentially get money out of them are not necessarily as aware of how powerful they are uh, in the world. So, I, you know, I thought maybe it'd be instructive to have at least a broad conversation about like, what are they, first of all? And then talk a little bit about the the difference between donor advised funds and then private foundations, because I think most people are maybe more familiar with private foundations if they kind of came at this work from maybe a decade or two ago, and then talk about ways they can be used in planning and, and ways that potentially, of course, nothing is set in stone or, or a promise, but uh, you know potentially could be changing in the future. So if that makes sense, I 
I say we go down that road. Sure. You want me to get started with just kind of giving a high level of what a donor advised fund is? Would that be a good place to start? Yeah, excellent. Oh. Okay, so when, when I talk to clients about donor advised funds, I like to describe them as a charitable investment account. So the idea is that you are going to make a contribution to this account, to this fund, and you're going to get a charitable deduction for doing so. And uh, what you can contribute to the account is any number of things, cash, securities, some sort of appreciated asset, real estate. You know, there's some restrictions depending on um, the fund that you're contributing to. But the idea is that you're going to divest yourself of an asset and get a charitable deduction in exchange. And then the asset remains in the fund and is managed, likely invested, um, so that it can grow over time. And then you can make recommendations for how the fund is used to make charitable gifts. And there, that's that's a really important distinction. I'm fairly intentional when I use the word recommend, because when you make a gift to a donor advised fund, you're making an irrevocable contribution, um, and which means that you can't necessarily control the distribution to the charity. So you you control the fact that you make a contribution to the fund, but then the fund owns the asset and makes the contributions to the charity, and you. Uh, can be an advisor, the donor advised fund, you advise the fund on how the dollars can be used uh, in year one, in year two, and, and into the future. Um, so the idea is you get a, an upfront charitable tax deduction for the contribution, and then the gift to charities, the actual distributions that go out over time, um, can be made in any number of ways. Um, and you get to, you, you typically as a donor, um, establish an agreement with whoever's managing the fund on how your dollars will be used. So, for example, um, you may want to, to support um, African aid or an environmental cause or the or animals and, and humane societies. So you can you can indicate what types of organizations you want to support. Um, and you can be very involved in how the dollars, in recommending how the dollars are going to be allocated to the charities over time. Um, but that's kind of the, that's kind of high level. I, I like to think of it as a charitable investment account. I think that's a great way that you just described it, Erin. And I think it's, you know, one way that you know we, you know, when a client comes to us and they've got charitable intent, we're trying to go over the many different ways that they can give to charity rather than just writing that check out right to them. And you're letting them know that a donor advised fund, it's really simple at the end of the day. Like you, you explained it as just a charitable investment account. And a lot of these funds can be set up same day with, with some institutions, depending on who's going to be kind of managing um, the fund. And one thing, too, that I kind of recently learned, you know, we see a lot of our clients working with whatever financial institution that they've got a long record with. You know, there's like the Schwab Charitable things. Fidelity, I believe, has one. And that's great if they've got a long working relationship with them. But there's also community foundations that manage donor advised funds. And so if you kind of wanted to go one step further and have your your money really benefit the community and really go with that philanthropic intent, you could also set it up with a community foundation. You know, they're going to be taking their fee to manage the the account. But then again, they contribute more to the community. And then it, it just it's the gift that kind of keeps on giving. Right. 
Absolutely. We have we actually have a fabulous um, community foundation, the Oregon Community Foundation here in Oregon, where a lot of my clients um, like to establish their donor advised funds. There are some restrictions on making sure that some of the charitable giving that happens through the funds comes back into Oregon um, nonprofits. But also any profit um, that's seen by the Oregon Community Foundation is then plowed into grant making and charitable contributions by the organization itself. So um, absolutely. Fidelity and Schwab have um, great platforms, but I, I love to encourage donors to also think about some of these more independent, localized uh, community foundations. I think that's a great point, Rachel. Yeah, and, it's, and I think it is important for potential donors to understand who it is that they're giving the money to. You know, we've been saying fund and that that it is truly a fund because it's it's an account like you're describing, but it's an a fund it's a fund that's owned by a charity. And at some level there has to be a quote unquote public charity that is receiving the money. That's why you get the deduction for making the contribution to that fund. And so when that, you know, if it's a sponsoring public charity like the Community Foundation, like the Arizona Community Foundation here, or it sounds like Oregon Community Foundation, you know, when they're making a profit on investing the funds or they're they're taking out fees for administering the fund, really that money is going to the charity who can then turn around and use it for for their own internal purposes and, and grant making processes like you're describing. And and maybe to put just a little bit of a a, a gloss on this for anybody who thinks that this is just sort of esoteric, like out in the out in the ether, and that doesn't actually exist. There's a, I believe the largest uh, sponsor of donor advised funds, the National Philanthropic Trust, puts out a report every year about uh, donor advised funds, contributions to the funds, the amount of money that's in the funds. In so for perspective, in 2019, their report said that there were 3881 billion dollars contributed to donor advised funds with a b billion dollars contributed to donor advised funds and in that same year the total amount of money that was actually in donor advised funds was in excess of 180 billion dollars so not a surprise that the fidelity fidelities and schwabs of the world figured this out and figured out a way that they could sort of have some skin in the game so to speak uh, but there's a tremendous amount of money in these funds and a tremendous amount of money that is distributed every year as as grants from donor advised fund it's a real strong player in the charitable field well and you know what i think is probably important to point out is the entry point to some of these funds because this is not you do not have to write a two hundred thousand dollar check or contribute an appreciated you know shares of stock and we'll get to that but um, you know, the, the entry point for some of these funds is $5,000 to set up a fund. Um, that seems like it's probably on the low side, but I think when last I checked a, a Schwab or a Fidelity, you could open one of these donor advised funds with as little as a $5,000 contribution. I know the Oregon Community Foundation and some other organizations might have a $25,000 minimum um, initial contribution, but this is really accessible for a lot of people who want to incorporate charitable giving without complexity. Rachel touched on that. Um, this is a really easy way to get started um, and to start incorporating this into your planning. Absolutely. And those are the same numbers that I'm seeing as well, Aaron, where uh, I, I think Fidelity, well, Fidelity may be a little bit more, but I, I think Schwab for sure is a $5,000 minimum. And people might be wondering, well, why would Schwab want $5,000? 
when you get into the fund, you have options on how you can and ask that the money be invested. And there are sh certain Schwab funds that uh, the money can be invested in. So Schwab has a little bit of skin in the game on the, the asset management and the, the investment side of things as well. But if you think about you know time value of money and sort of usual economics of investing, if you could take $10, say, give it to charity, invest it, let it grow, and grow at normal market rates, so say seven to nine percent in normal market years. Over time, that money can grow into a lot more, and now your charitable your charitable dollars, when you're ready to deploy it, um, are more valuable, and you can do more with them with a much lower uh, investment upfront. Plus, of course, you get your tax deduction. So there's a lot of interesting as you say, uh, accessible ways that people can get into donor advice funds and really start to establish a, a, a substantial fund just by feeding in even minimum amounts of money into the funds and then investing it wisely over time. Yeah, and and let's talk about the feeding of funds into mm -hmm. you know how how do you start the fund and where do where do those initial contributions come from? You know, obviously the the first thing that comes to mind is writing a check, right? So we get a, a request from a nonprofit, we want to help their cause, we write a check. Um, we want to open a donor advised fund, we write a check. There's an opportunity to really make an income tax, a, a strategic income tax contribution to a donor advised fund. And that is thinking about appreciated securities. So um, when you have an appreciated sh share that you own of stock and you contribute it to the donor advised fund, you're gonna get a charitable deduction for your contribution, but the charity is the one that sells the share of stock to generate the cash and they don't have to pay capital gains, assuming that share of stock is, is a, um, was held for at least a year, it's a long-term um, gain, then when the donor advised fund sells the share, they don't have to pay capital gains. So um, I always encourage my clients who are charitably inclined to look at what, what their investment advisors are recommending in terms of how they're gonna handle their portfolio. Are there things that have been appreciating um, that they wanna get rid of and diversify? And oh, by the way, simultaneously, they're very, they wanna make some gifts to nonprofits. Well, we could, we could if, we are, if everyone's looking and working together, um, we could be strategic at making the contributions not from cash, but from appreciated securities. As, a, as an income tax play. So um, there's lots of opportunity there for planning. And, and the other thing that I would say there is a, is a timing comment, and that is that um, you may have a large tranche of, of um, securities that you wanna get rid of, and but you're not ready to make a, a charitable gift. To, you, you don't have a charity in mind for that gift necessarily. The donor advised fund is a great way um, to have that charitable gift in year one, but then be able to make gifts into the future. So it's basically like front loading your charitable giving and then having a bucket of money that can be invested grows over time. And then from which you can make, you know, a lifetime of charitable gifts all based on that single and initial contribution. So lots of income tax opportunities, minimization opportunities there. Yeah, there's a lot of really good tidbits that you said in there, Erin, and I like one where you know you talk about it's you know you're you're front loading the gift, right? You you're you're 
putting all the the assets into the fund now you're taking back the charitable deduction and then you can sit on it for a while and take your time figuring out you know what uh, what you know your your family's values are and one thing also that I love about donor advised funds is it's not just the donor who can you know be the only person who makes recommendations on which charities can benefit. You can set it up so that your family is involved. You almost kind of have a, like a board structure on who gets to kind of make recommendations on which charities. And I love that in, for a lot of our clients who are thinking about getting their children involved in the intergenerational wealth, but they're not too sure about how their kids are gonna be able to handle the money, handle the kind of the family's values and their mission. And so that's an easy way for you to get the family and the younger generations involved and see how they do in the future and whether or not you know they really are sticking to those values. I think, I mean, that's a huge opportunity. And, um, and if I could call it a pitch, you know, when I'm pitching my clients on considering this, absolutely, that opportunity to um, share values and to bring the next generation, or really oftentimes it's clients and and a more remote generation, so a grandchild, um, where they really wanna get them involved and get them excited. I'll often see um, families where, where they will go to their children or their grandchildren and, and give them a mission of locating and researching their own charity or their own cause and, um, and really learning about the organization and asking about how they would use the contribution and, um, and use it as an educational opportunity. And then the child comes back and pitches it to this board of advisors on the fund. Um, and it's, you know, it's just kind of an exciting way to get kids involved in, in phil philanthropy. Um, so I absolutely, I absolutely love that. I thought I'd, I'd mention a couple comments, and this is, I'll talk in particular about the Oregon Community Foundation and how they um, set up a fund. But the way that you start the process is with a fund or a gift agreement. And so in that agreement, and I, and I mentioned this already, but you're going to kind of, you may identify charities, that, specific charities that you want to support. You may identify missions that you want to support. And then you have an opportunity to identify not only who may serve on your uh, akin to a board of directors, but your advisory team, you may also identify who would take over if something happens to you. So there is some opportunity, um, you know, from a more traditional estate planning perspective to think about, you know, if you're no longer here, who will carry on the mission of the fund? Um, so lots of opportunities for families here. And again, I can't stress it enough. It's easy. It's, um, you know, low cost. And, and so that's why I just I, I am a huge fan of these donor advised funds, at least incorporating them at some level into planning where I've got clients who are uh, philanthropic. Yeah, I love that. Well, that's I think that's a good segue to maybe compare and contrast a little bit donor advised funds. And private foundations, on the other hand, because what you were describing sound a sounded a lot like a private foundation, but of course it's not. So can you maybe fill in those details? Sure. So when um, when we're talking about a private foundation, you're really talking about a separate entity. So so a separate tax filer. And and with that status comes a lot more complexity. So um, you have more tax reporting that's required for private foundations um, and you have just more regulatory oversight in what they're doing because there is a, a fear, you know, if you think about it, 
Um, if you have a wealthy individual who's kind of feeling char charitable and they want to set up a, a, a private foundation, um, we want to make sure that that private foundation is really actually doing charitable work and not just, uh, you know, not just seeding um, or fulfilling the wealthy individual's um, other missions. And so there's a lot of oversight in private foundations. Um, and so the, the regulatory, it just makes things more complicated to set up a private foundation, not insurmountable by any means, but my, I typically tell a client that if they want a private foundation, we're looking at an initial investment of, of maybe a million or $2 million to really justify uh, the cost of setting one up. Um, so I'd be curious to know what your rule of thumb is. I think that's probably pretty standard. Um, although I, I don't know that I've checked myself recently, but about a million or $2 million initial investment, because oftentimes what you're talking about is maybe having a staff person who's going to handle um, not only the tax reporting, but also oversee the grant making, um, making sure that they are granting to organizations and using um, the funds that have been allocated to them in the way that they've been promised. So there, there needs to be greater oversight. But what are your thoughts, you guys, in terms of a private foundation and, and what it takes really from an economic standpoint to make it viable? Well, I, I tend to agree with you, Aaron, that they are harder to run economically unless they're seeded with a million plus dollars. I don't know if that's a, a black and white hard and fast rule. We have uh, one one client family, for example, they had a fund. Uh, we it's a very long running fund, but it had somewhere around half a million dollars in it. Uh, and just because of the way the market had worked and, and the amount of grant making that they were doing, it now has close to a million in it. And so sometimes the, the smaller private foundations can end up doing just fine. But I think the broader point is you want, first of all, you need somebody who can do the legwork or somebody's who can do all this legwork because you have to make, you got to make grants, you got to make grants to the right kinds of entities. And there are there are rules on 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 making grants from the private foundation. So there's a little bit of education and learning curve that goes into it. And then you've got to be generating enough money uh, in the investments inside that private foundation to where it is meaningful. And because otherwise it's just going to eat itself. And usually when when we have clients that are considering private foundations, they're wanting to set up a, a, a charitable entity or a charitable fund that's going to last a long time. And so if you don't have enough money to cover all the expenses and to cover uh, maybe the staffing and the costs of doing the investing, et cetera, and make uh, make grants and not just eat into your principal every year, you're going to run out of money eventually. So it doesn't unless there's enough economies of scale, it, it doesn't really meet those purposes. But as I say, I've seen them done for less and I've seen them be successful for less. Uh, I certainly I'm not telling anybody not to do it or to your point, like it's not impossible. Uh, it's just you have to be very motivated to doing it. It tends to be for us. I'm curious to hear if this is similar for you, Aaron, but it tends to be clients who want control. And the private foundation tends to lend itself more to control than, say, a donor advised fund. Absolutely. You have greater control not only on the grant making and overseeing that process, you also have control over how the assets are invested. So, you know, we talked about the donor advised fund and you are making a contribution to the fund. The fund is going to be invested by the Fidelity team or the Oregon Community Foundation. So you give up control over how those assets are invested. And, you know, if you've got an entrepreneurial client, 
they may have a sense of what they can do in the market or what return they could get on the investments. And so control is absolutely something to something to be considered. The other thing, um, and and I would put this, you know, in favor of a private foundation is that a donor advised fund, you can only make contributions to 501c3s. And there's um, a, a wider variety of um, entities that you can donate to and, and grant making opportunities in a private foundation. So, um, you know, again, having flexibility and control, that's probably there's more available in the private foundation context. Um, Absolutely. And there's also the the uh, type of contribution that sometimes will inform uh, whether we're going to lean towards a private foundation. So the the common one is some family business entity. Now, is, I mean, this is a very broad stroke. That's usually not a great uh, entity to throw into charities for a bunch of reasons we're, we're not going to bore everybody with today. But sometimes when that there's a motivation to add a, a family bu- business entity of some amount into a charity, the donor advice fund is not going to be the place for it, potentially. And the private foundation, in addition to some of these control issues, is the better place for that to land. And so we see that being a motivating factor sometimes, too. Absolutely. If it's cash, marketable securities, a donor advised fund is a perfectly easy and appropriate place. But if you've got an asset, most donor advised funds, with the exception of one um, that I did some work with earlier this year, they won't accept, they don't want to hold closely held business interests or um, real estate for that matter. I mean, they just, they want, they're not in the business of managing those kinds of assets. I have noticed that some of the donor advised fund uh, sponsors have caught wise to this control issue. And so sometimes they will allow the donor's financial advisor to continue to provide financial advisory services on the fund. I, and I, I apologize for everybody. I do not have a list of this off the top of my head, but I know they exist out there because I've heard the pitches. So uh, it's not an issue that has gone unnoticed by the those who are who are setting up and sponsoring donor advised funds. Okay, so I haven't, I have not run into that yet. I've certainly seen that in the corporate trustee world where um, they want to appoint a corporate trustee but maintain their relationship with their advisor. So there's a bifurcation of duties, but I haven't seen it. I'll have to, I'll be on the lookout for that. I, I think the Arizona Community Foundation will allow you to do it, but I could be wrong about that. So if somebody at ACF hears me and I'm wrong, they need to just ping me and tell me that. So take the, everybody take that with a huge grain of salt. Do your own research. Uh, but okay, that that is a really good uh, introduction, I think, to to that topic of the differences and the key differences between donor advised funds and uh, private foundations. So thank you for that. Well, so and how, you know what? There's 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 a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's no, actually one one more you know just one more distinction, and that has to do with the deductibility of the contribution. Mm. There's typically a reduction. Um, you can it's a it's a smaller um, threshold for what you can deduct when you make a contribution to a private foundation as compared to um, a donor advised fund. In particular, there's limits. So in 20 and 21, there were some changes to the law. But historically, the amount that you can contribute is limited based on your adjusted gross income. And so contributions to private foundations have a lower limit. And that's for cash contributions, I think it's it's 30% of your adjusted gross income and 20% for appreciated securities. And then it's a higher amount. So it's 60% for, 
for a cap of your adjusted gross income for contributions. And if you make contributions, you can carry those forward for five years under either scenario. But I just wanted to point out that there's some some restrictions um, in terms of what you're what you can contribute to and take a deduction on. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially because we were talking about the low entry point to setting up a donor advised fund. Well, if you're a taxpayer who's basically not able to itemize deductions, then you're probably not because of these limitations and and the amount of money that you'd be putting in at these like minimum thresholds, you're probably not going to take a charitable deduction for having made the contribution. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, to to probably put it mildly, the the contribution limitations are very complex and not always easy or intuitive to understand. So there's there's that little caveat for everybody. So always ask your accountant or tax attorney before you before you get too far down that road. It also matters what the asset is. So um, there's some limitations. So if you're contributing uh, real estate or a non-publicly traded security to a, a, um, a private foundation, they, they may limit the deduction. Again, talk to your tax accountant, but they may limit your deduction to your basis in the asset as compared to if you were making that contribution uh, to a donor advised fund, you could deduct the fair market value. So there's mm-hmm. there's definitely um, you know pros and cons and things that you need to weigh with your advisors. Yeah, the bottom line is essentially if you're just writing a check for cash, that's the best kind. So uh, you'll get the biggest deduction and it certainly will be the easiest. So mm-hmm. everything else, talk to somebody before you do it uh, for sure. Otherwise, uh, you may have a surprise on your hands when you go to file your taxes and and hope we're, you know, maybe we're hoping to claim a refund that you don't get. The structure then of donor advised funds, like we kind of let in, really opens up a lot of planning opportunities. I, you know, I know the way that we kind of like to use them. I'm very curious, Aaron, to hear what ways you tend to use them in more complex planning scenarios than just writing a check and giving it to the sponsoring entity. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we touched on one, and that was being intentional about family philanthropy. I just think it's just a really easy way for families to start that process. I mean, we have lots of families that we work with that have a history of philanthropy and they've grown up with philanthropy. But for families that are new to this, I just think it's a really nice place to start. Um, And there's no reason why you can't have a donor advised fund and in the future have a private foundation or some sort of other um, charitable trust. So so I just like it as an entry point for for family giving. And I and I really love that. And I, I I it sounds like you and I and Rachel are all on the same board in terms of uh, or on the same page in terms of like for family philanthropy, donor advised funds were fantastic and they're an, like easy entry point and it's a great way to kind of get the the charitable wheels spinning for families. One of the other ways that uh, I really love to use them, and this gets a little bit back to clients who like to have some control. But it's more for clients who want to get, you know, they don't want to just give away the asset. They want to get something back, something back from the asset. And so for those clients, quite often they'll have appreciated assets. We will contribute the appreciated assets to a charitable remainder trust. The charitable remainder trust will pay them uh, some amounts over a term of years or their life, oftentimes their life. And then at the end of the charitable remainder trust, whatever is left in the trust goes into the donor advised fund. And so in that case, 
even if they're the trustee of the trust and they're getting money out of the trust and then the money's going into the donor advice fund that's basically the family's fund like we're going to set it up like we were talking about with the family essentially they're on all sides of the transaction from a quote-unquote control perspective with the huge caveat that you don't control the donor advice fund you only advise on it right so from that perspective we can get them some some cash back creates a little bit of liquidity there's some tax efficiencies to the charitable major trust we don't necessarily have to get into here but then on the back end the family can still control the money in some fashion through the donor advice fund so it's kind of a, a control freaks dream yeah and so um so so i'll take that in a slightly different direction but mm -hmm. i like using donor advised funds in in the planning that i do so so we'll do a um or will or in oregon we often use revocable living trusts as a as a way to handle um people's estate planning intentions and you know i have some clients who call me all the time and we're constantly tweaking their plans and others that would prefer not to pay me all the time to tweak their plans and so one of the things that I like is using the charitable giving component in the plan and having that donor advised fund created so that I can say, you know, give 10% of my estate on my death um, to the Aaron McDonald donor advised fund. And then I don't have to be specific about what charities are included in the fund. I can just designate my fund and then I maintain the fund agreement with Oregon Community Foundation or whoever I'm working with. And then I can constantly be adjusting who those charities of choice are on that side of it without having to pay a bunch of attorney fees to constantly be changing my plan. So I like the flexibility that the donor advised fund gives gives clients to be able to do that, like all the little tweaks and the things that change every year. Um, you know, this charity is in favor now and this one's fallen out of favor. All of that can happen directly with Oregon Community Foundation, and I don't have to um, be constantly modifying the client's estate plan. And, and then there's, and you can, I can even go one step further. So I might have clients who currently aren't ready to make the contribution, but they do want to do it in the future. It's possible to create a fund agreement with many of these organizations, and you do not have to fund it now. So it is something that can be funded in the future. Again, giving the client flexibility to decide when it's funded and then control how much gets funded um, when they pass away. So, you know, right now that amount might be based on what the estate tax exemptions are. So, um, and that might change in the future. And so the, the flexibility that it gives us to make plans in the future without setting it in stone. So I love to use it even just in a testamentary capacity, a future funding, um, but they've established the relationship and, and maybe even created that fund agreement. I love that. Those are great. And this, the idea of being able to put in a placeholder that then does not require you, the lawyer, to go amend the document every time um, somebody on the board of a foundation offends the client in a way that they no longer want to give money to that found foundation uh, is great. And uh, yeah, I'm 100% in favor of those sorts of things. One other way that uh, I see donor advised funds used, it has more, this is, so this is going to be a little bit of a niche area, so my apologies to everybody. But, and that is, if you're if you want to give money, either as an individual or really or as a charity, in particular private foundations, it's a big problem. Um, to non-U.S. 
charitable causes, it can be very difficult to do that and qualify for uh, tax deductions if you're doing it directly to the entity, especially if you're a charity making grants to those entities, there are all sorts of problematic rules that you got to work your way through. Um, but for individuals, it can be a challenge as well, because you basically have to prove up that you gave money to an entity that is the equivalent of a U.S. charity such that you should get a deduction for having made that contribution. Well, it turns out that foreign charities, not being dummies, have set up uh, funds in the U.S. that are donor advised funds or, or they'll sponsor donor advised funds that have a focus on giving money to certain areas of the world. And then that sponsoring charity will do all of the nitpicky administrative work that it's just tedious to deal with to then make those grants to the foreign entity without tripping up on the U.S. tax rules. And you, the, the donor, don't have to worry about it. You just give the money to the donor advice fund. You take your deduction like you gave it to a normal U.S. charity, and they take care of the complexity of then transferring money charitably to a, a foreign cause or foreign entity. So that's a very handy way for clients that want to do cross-border charitable work to just do it, not have to deal with all the hassle. Yeah, and I mean, that hassle, That I, I love that application. The other thing is that typically these organizations have teams of people that not only vet the charities, but they will also help you identify charities that fulfill your mission. So um, you get you get so much back office support um, for for very little cost. I mean, I know we're stressing it's easy, it's a low entry point, um, but you get quite a bit of support in your charitable giving, which is great. Whether it's it's vetting an international gift or a, a, a gift stateside. Um, they just they have all of that back office support um, to add value to your giving. Well, I think one of, one of the other areas about donor advice funds that I feel compelled uh, on is to then ed, to then educate all of the charitable boards that I'm on that they exist. That's a big one right there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and so that yes, exactly. So or yes, to and to uh, and to advise and make sure that the team of advisors on the donor advised fund knows that your charity exists, right? And that you're finding missions because that's really what it's all about is, is connecting donors and their dollars with the things that make them feel good and the ideas that they want to support. And so the more you can educate the donor advised fund um, and then also your executive directors of the, of the nonprofits and things about how those donor advised funds, um, how they make their grants, super important. Well, for again, for a little bit of gloss from the same National Philanthropic Trust report, in 2019, donor advised funds granted $25 billion in charitable grants, $25 billion. So that's a big pie, and many charities would have qualified in some way to get grants out of that pie. And so, you know, charities that are not actively trying to get their, themselves on lists for uh, donor advised fund grant making cycles are really missing the boat, I think. So that's my that's my public service announcement to all the charitable fund advisors and, and executive directors out there. I'm, I'm making note of all these facts. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm going to have to check out this report. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Oh, that'd be great. So I'll save you. I'll save you the I'll save you the trouble. Yeah. Well, perfect. not notwithstanding all of the amazing things that we just said about donor advised funds, it turns out some people in Washington, D.C. just don't like them. And they, you know, reasonable minds disagree and everybody has uh, has reasonable arguments on on these issues. So that's not to, to denigrate anybody in particular. But there are a few uh, ideas out there that 
could become the law at some point in the future. Who knows if they will and who knows when. So uh, you want to maybe give a little gloss to that. Yeah, and just I'll just give a gloss because it's it's a bill that's out there in particular, um, one that came out. People were talking about it in June, and now Congress is on recess. But um, there is a is a bill. It's uh, called the Accelerating Charitable Efforts Act, ACE Act, and it is really aimed at going after some of these contributions to donor advised funds. You know, we we made a point of saying it's great because you can front load your giving and then have it stretch out over time. Well, some people are concerned about getting that charitable um, deduction up front, but not actually having the dollars being distributed to the charities. So um, Senators King and Grassley have introduced a, a bill. Um, again, it's called the ACE Act, and it would put some restrictions on how long those contributions could sit in a donor advised fund before they actually have to be expended to the charity. There's also talk about not giving the charitable deduction until the distribution actually comes out of the fund and goes to the charity. So this is all really at this point, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen um, and if this will really gain traction. But it's, you know, it's worth noting that there's tax laws and tax changes that are coming down the pike and whether or not the donor advised funds will be implicated. It remains to be seen, but just just something to know that it's out there. Yeah, exactly. Just for for anybody who's involved in this area, just to know that 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 issue is there. There are some concerns in Washington, D.C. And again, as I say, you know, reasonable minds disagree on these things. It's certainly reasonable to take the position that it's not good federal tax policy to give uh, large charitable contribution deductions and then allow the money to just sit in an account not being deployed for charitable purposes, because the theory behind a charitable contribution deduction it is, in essence, that the money is being used for a service that the government would ever otherwise have to provide. So therefore, you would be incentivizing giving money uh, to an organization fulfilling a semi-governmental uh, role, um, You know, at least as a very, again, very broad strokes here of, of underlying tax policy for a lot of nonprofit uh, tax law in this country. So as I said, it's uh, reasonable for people to have concerns about donor advice funds. But while they exist under the current rules, they have all the benefits that we just described. So and maybe even more that we forgot about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aaron, we were so excited to have this conversation with you uh, and it did not disappoint. If people are trying to reach you, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. So I will give you I was actually going to give you my Twitter account. Um, oh, nice. Do you think your Do you think you guys your your listeners are on Twitter? It's my handle is at Aaron E R I N K MacDonald M A C D O N A L D. So you can follow me on Twitter or send me a message. Um, I'm also you can find me on my company's website. So it's Carnop K A R N O P P dot com. We're a a small firm in Bend, Oregon, uh, doing a lot of good work in estate planning. Perfect. And of course, we'll we'll add all that contact information in the show notes. Anybody who's rooting around uh, in those notes will find it there. Uh, Aaron, we cannot thank you enough for, for doing this with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Great. Thanks, you guys. It was nice to talk. 
Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.